Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. We'll be reading from Psalm 91. My refuge and my fortress, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge. No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder. The young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot, because he holds fast to me in love. I will deliver him. I will protect him, because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Soul Keeping is our current teaching series through the book of Psalms. Whatever you're going through, there's a psalm for that. And if you're experiencing worry, fear, and anxiety, this is the psalm for that. And we're going to talk about resting in God. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Psalm 91. We'll be walking through that psalm verse by verse. And also grab your sermon notes out. Let me start by asking you a question. I want you just to think for a few moments. What are your greatest fears? What are your greatest fears? In a fallen world, it's easy to become, to be overwhelmed by fear, worry, and anxiety. Mass shootings are becoming more frequent. Drug overdoses are epidemic. Add to that the bereavement of family and friends dying, the battling of serious illness, relational betrayal, and financial reversal, and you've got the making of a nervous breakdown, of an anxiety attack. We started Desert Breeze while I was working for Phoenix Fire as a paramedic firefighter responding to 911 calls. And um, this uh, Psalm, Psalm 91.1 has a very special meaning to me. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest, will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge, my fortress, my God, in whom I trust, If you will learn how to dwell in him, you will find rest. You will find rest in him. I love 
I love those verses. I love this, this whole chapter in Psalms, Psalm 91. God responds to our 911 calls is what it's telling us. And uh, let me just share with you just a few stories of my time with uh, Phoenix Fire. One of the calls that stands out to me was uh, we responded, my engine company responded to a drowning. It was a six-year-old who had drowned. What was crazy about this story was that uh, it was the babysitter who had taken this six-year-old to a Bible study. And while she was in the Bible study, they had the kids playing in the backyard. And the, and the pool was certainly fenced in well, but somehow this little six-year-old climbed over the fence and drowned. So let me ask you this, how, how would you respond to something like this? They're sitting in a Bible study group, having the kids playing in the backyard. It seems to be safe, and this six-year-old climbs over the fence and drowns. He died. How do you think the mom and dad who entrusted this babysitter with their most precious gift, their six-year-old son, how would you work through that? Psalm 91 helps us to do that. I'll never forget this call that uh, I was, uh, I worked out of Station 10 most of my careers off of I-17 Thomas Road. We got the call, it was late into the night. Uh, it was on the weekend, and it was a shooting. It was an apartment complex just uh, north of Thomas on the east side of I-17. And some guy had come through the apartment complex and just began to shoot the complex up. And there were people outside, it was late at night, and we arrived on the scene and there was already an adult who was dead laying between the cars. And, uh, but there was a little, about a four or five year old boy who his dad was holding him in his arms. He was asleep and he was awaiting for his estranged wife to show up uh, for him to be picked up. And uh, she hadn't shown up yet. He was standing out there and one of the stray bullets went through his hand into the head of this little four or five year old little boy. Never forget it, we swooped and ran with him to St. Joseph's Hospital. My, my partner and I, my, uh, the other paramedic on the truck was our captain. And I'll never forget what he said as we were heading into St. Joseph's with this, with this little boy in the back of the rescue. He said to me, he just, you could see that he was just overwhelmed. He says, I am so tired of this. And he said, he didn't say crap, but I'll say crap because he used an expletive. He says, I am so tired of this. And, and it was shortly thereafter, he gave up his patch as a paramedic. He says, I'm tired of dealing with this, the darkness and the difficulty and the pain and the suffering and the loss. And uh, he later on became a, a chief here with Phoenix Fire. But he was overwhelmed. And that's one of the reasons why uh, with first responders, alcoholism is very high, divorce rate is very high, and suicide is very high. Because I really don't believe that a lot of them have the, uh, the uh, biblical worldview, the, the gospel to be able to navigate through that. Thank God I had the gospel to be able to respond to these harsh, harsh situations, these very difficult situations. One of the very first funerals that I ever did as a pastor, a brand new pastor, was uh, for a stillborn baby. It was almost like, welcome to being a pastor. Your first job will be a funeral for a stillborn. So I walked into this, uh, this room, this chapel. It was packed with people. 
It was my job to come in there and try to bring them some sort of understanding and hope in the midst of that devastation. How was I going to do that? Psalm 91, 1 and 2 have been my favorite because I believe that it gives us the resources we need along with the rest of the scriptures to be able to face dangerous times, difficult times, devastating times. I would often use this in many funerals as the very first verses that I would quote, those first two verses. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest, will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. So if you'll learn how to dwell, you can find rest for your life. And so God responds to our 911 calls. If you don't deal with your fears, and this is what I've learned in my own life, if you don't deal with your fears, they will more and more imprison you and enslave you. Over time, it'll only get worse. Over time, it will only get worse. And and what Psalm 91, 1 and the rest of the chapter, Psalm 91, is telling us that you don't have to be imprisoned or enslaved by your fear, worry, and anxiety. You don't need to be enslaved by those things. You don't have to be overwhelmed by the dangerous times that we live in, the difficult times that we live in. And in fact, here's the thesis statement for our study. If I will dwell in him, you can see this is part of the outline there on your notes. If I will dwell in him, I can find rest for my fearful heart and live a full and satisfying life even in the face of danger. Even in the face of danger. So God responds to our 911 calls. So let's take that first part. If I will dwell in him. So we need to learn how to dwell in him. What does that mean? The first four verses talk about that. They help us with that. Let me read it again, verse one. He who dwells in a shelter, the word shelter is hiding or secret place. Shelter of the most high will abide. ESV uses the word abide. I like the word rest because that's what it actually means. I I memorized this a number of years ago from the NIV. And so we'll rest in the shadow. I like that, the images that he's using here to help us to see that we're safe. God will take care of us. And so he uses the word shelter and most high and shadow. The word shadow also means shade. The shadow or the shade of the Almighty. The idea here is that this is being so close to God that even his shadow falls on you. Being in the direct sunlight in the desert can be deadly without, without shade. And that's why he's using this imagery. It's beautiful imagery. Being in the shade, protected from the harsh rays of the sun. Here's your first fill in the blank on your notes. So we're, we're trying to define this idea. If I will dwell in him, what does it mean to dwell in him? It's, it's not your public but private life with God that matters most. <clears throat> so it's not your public life, not what you do spiritually, publicly, but what you do privately with God. It's your interaction with him. That's based on the word shelter. And that word shelter means he who dwells in the shelter. It's hiding or secret place. So let me ask you this. Everybody look up here. Where's your hiding place? Where's your shelter with God? How often do you go to him as a, as a place of shelter? That hiding place, that secret place, just between you and God 
between you and God. We, we were taking care of our, six of our grandkids uh, for over five days this last weekend, and, and I was on survival mode, okay? And I had a hard time finding that secret place. So my heart goes out to you, those of you that have kids. It's like, wow, that was hard. So I, I understand. I understand it's really hard when you got a house full of kids to try to find that secret place with God and that shelter. Where is yours? Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 6, 6. But when you pray, not if you pray, but when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees, your Father who sees in secret will reward you. He will meet with you. He's with you, interacting with you. I love that. Praying to, to your Father who is in secret is not only an incredible privilege, but also an indispensable pathway to happiness and holiness, but, but rest. I don't know how many times I've been stressed out, ang- anxious, and fearful, and I go to that secret place that hiding place, just me and God. I'm I'm rejuvenated. I I find rest with him. You can find rest with him. And that's that's what it means to dwell or or to abide in him. Look at verse 2. I will say to the Lord, my refuge, refuge means provision, and my fortress, protection, my God, in whom I trust. This is covenant language. So he starts off by just saying uh, Yahweh, that's covenant name for God, and then my refuge, my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Covenant language. What does that mean? Co- well, covenant language means that you didn't pursue him, he pursued you. That he came after you with his preemptive love, and he has blessed you with everything you'll ever need. So now he's inviting you just to respond to him by obeying him and loving him and serving him and living your life for him. That's what covenant means, is that he provides everything we need and we enter into relationship with him because what, if, what he has accomplished for us. Now, what's interesting about this verse, verse 2 is that he's talking really to himself. I will say to the Lord. He's talking to himself, my refuge. He's making this, these faith declarations, my refuge, my fortress, my God, in whom I trust. And so this is what you need to know is that no one talks to you and has greater influence on you than, than you. No one talks to you more and has greater influence on you than, than you, you. You talk to yourself. And in fact, we speak 150 to 200 words a minute. Uh, some of you speak more than that because I've had conversation with you. <laughs> and uh, we carry on an inner dialogue with ourselves at an astounding rate of about 1,300 words a minute. And that depends on how much Red Bull or espresso we've had that morning. But that's, that's quite amazing. So here's what you need to keep in mind. All day long, you are having thoughts, observations, perceptions, ideas flowing through your mind. And who you are can be no greater or no worse than the thoughts you entertain in your head. What are you saying to yourself? What are you speaking to yourself? 
I love what Charles Spurgeon says about this verse, verse 2. Listen to him. He says, to take a general truth and make it ours by personal faith is the highest wisdom. It is little comfort to say the Lord is a refuge, but to say he is my refuge is the essence of consolation. People are quick enough to proclaim their doubts and even to boast about them. They glory in casting suspicion on everything. Thus, it is the duty of true believers to testify with calm courage to their well-grounded reliance on God. Let others say what they will. We proclaim he is our refuge in our fortress. So this should be the conversation that's going on within your head each and every day. Here's your next thought, next fill in the blank on your notes. So this idea of abiding, so it's that secret place that helps to nurture that abiding, and then what is that abiding? It is making your home in God's love and truth, reflecting on it, saturated in it, standing in awe of it. It's preaching the gospel to yourself. That's what should occupy your heart. That's why it tells us in Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. You know what it's saying there? It's not your circumstances that make you feel and behave the way you feel and behave. It's your evaluation. It's what you're saying to yourself about your circumstances. Do you have a biblical worldview to filter what's going on in your life? Above all else, guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. John 15 talks about this idea of dwelling or abiding let me just give you one verse, 15.5. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides or dwells in me and I in him, it's talking of communion, he it is that bears much fruit for apart from me. You can do nothing. Psalm 103, I love that psalm. So the psalmist is, uh, this is one of those psalms where the psalmist is talking to himself. He says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. You hear what he's saying? He's talking to his soul. He said, come on, soul. Come on, soul. Please, come on, soul. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. And the rest of the psalm is he's working through the list of benefits that are his in God. He's just reciting them. You need to be able to do that. What are the benefits that you're living in the reality of? That's what he's saying. That's what the psalmist is saying here. In, in verse 2, I will say to the Lord, my refuge, my fortress, my God in whom I trust. So this promise of rest is not for every believer, but only for those who live in close fellowship with God. Dwelling, this idea of dwelling, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High, dwelling is habitual, not occasional. So there is a condition, he who dwells, and then there's a promise, will find rest. Look at verses three and four. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler, speaks of temptation, and from the deadly pestilence, that speaks of trial, difficulty. And then he gives us this great metaphor. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. So next on your fill in the blanks there, metaphor, a mother bird protecting her young with her wings conveys God's toughness and tenderness. And one other thing, you'll have to wait till we get to the end of the sermon 
to understand what that's. So there's three things that this conveys to us, this imagery, this idea. Toughness and tenderness, God's greatness and goodness. This concept is throughout Scripture. Let me give you a couple different places. Ruth 2.12, Boaz says to Ruth, the Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Psalm 36, 7, how precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. Psalm 57, 1, be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge in the shadow of your wings. I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. So great imagery here. So in his greatness, his toughness, he can take care of you. In his goodness or his tenderness, he wants to take care of you. So this is what we need to understand, is that fear, worry, and anxiety is doubting one of those or both of those. If you, if you are overwhelmed with fear, worry, and anxiety because of the, how dangerous and difficult life is, it's because you're not trusting God's goodness and greatness, his greatness and his goodness, one or the other. You're probably thinking, well, I, I know that he loves me, but is he capable of taking care of me? Yes. That's why you have all this imagery here. He's trying to get that across to us. Okay, I know he's great. I know he created the heavens and the earth, but does he care about me? Yes. Like a mother bird bringing in her chicks up underneath her wings. That's why we have this imagery so clear. So important for us to, to meditate on and think about it, let it dominate our thoughts and preach the gospel to ourselves daily. Here's the point in these first four verses. God is never remote or distant, no matter what you are going through or how you feel. He's with you. He's here today to meet with us through worship and song and worship in the study of, of his of his word and scripture. So if I dwell in him, here's the next part, I can find rest for my fearful heart. That's verses five through 13. Now I want you to notice how sweeping these promises seem to be. He starts off by saying, verse five, you will not fear. That's where I got that idea of, he's kind of expounding on this idea of what rest looks like. And he says, you will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by the day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes in noonday. Notice night and day and darkness and noonday. That's, this is 24-7 language, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. He's got you covered. He's going to take care of you. There's never a time when God is not exercising his greatness and goodness over your life. My wife, Nancy, uh, does a lot of, of flinching and bracing of herself when I'm driving. And, and I don't know why. I don't know why she does that, because I'm, I'm a great driver. I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a great driver. I have an over 40-year track record of, of, with her, of us, of, of me not killing us, okay? And um, it was about, about three years ago we were heading up Sunset Point, and when you head out of town this time of year, it, teem it, it seems to always slow down right there. 
It's bumper to bumper. I kind of did a little swerving in and out of traffic. We were taking our grandkids. We had about five or six of our grandkids in the back of the car. And I did a little swerving. And, uh, and as we were going up the hill, we were taking them back to their, their home outside of Prescott. And I heard one of my grandsons, a seven-year-old from the back seat say, he said this, don't be driving crazy now, Grandpa. <laughs> so that's kind of been a common thing around our house now. Don't be driving crazy now, Grandpa. <laughs> and, then, and then he said this, what's the speed limit anyway, Grandpa? <laughs> and, uh, hey, kid, mind your own business. <laughs> Go back to that video game you were playing, okay? Nothing like being lectured by a seven-year-old about your driving, okay? And so when you committed your life to Jesus, in essence, you were saying, Jesus, take the wheel. And yet, oftentimes, with him in the driver's seat of our lives, do you find yourself doing a lot of flinching and bracing with his driving? See, what he's saying in these first few verses is that... um, There is never a time when God is not exercising his loving, wise control over your life, his greatness and his goodness. Verses five and six, he's just, he's saying, hey, I've got you covered, I'm gonna take care of you. Look at verse seven. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. Notice how sweeping that is. And then he says, you gotta read this with the next verse. He says, you will, you will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. So he's actually talking about judgment here, that recompense means judgment of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the most high who is my refuge. Notice what he says here, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. It's pretty sweeping. No plague come near your tent. Verse 11, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. So that idea that angels are watching over you, that's where we get it. That's true. He's got his angels watching over us. Now, I was thinking about this. Some people need more angels than others because of the way that they drive, okay? And, and my sister, Aloha, would be one of those, okay? And she's in the breezeway, I think, right now. Do you hear that, Aloha? You're a crazy driver. She knows that unapologetically. And so uh, if you ever ride with her, she will help you to become more disciplined in your prayer life, believe me. <laughs> Even her angels watching over her are anxious about her driving. (laughs) And so uh, what's interesting about this is he mentions angels. When you go through scripture, there are military angels, there are messenger angels, and then there's ministry angels. These are ministry angels taking care of us, helping us. Look at verse 13. You will tread on the lion and the adder. The young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. He's talking spiritual warfare here. This is kind of this idea of spiritual warfare in this unseen world when we're under attack by our adversary. He says, you will tread on the lion and the adder. The young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Now, it seems like these verses are saying, if you trust God, nothing bad is going to happen to you. And if anything bad does happen to you, then you must not be trusting God. 
Because these promises seem to be really sweeping. Do you see the same thing as you read through this? Yeah. If you trust God, everything will go well. And if everything is not going well, it means you're not trusting God. Now, what I'm about to tell you is not something that I would say to someone who's actually going through really horrible suffering. I wouldn't say this to them while they're going through it. I would say it to them maybe later on after they've gotten through it. And, uh, but, but what I'm going to share with you is something that you need to know before you go through suffering. These are truths that you need to embrace, giving you that biblical worldview so that you can begin to navigate through suffering, so that you can even find rest. As you learn to dwell, you will find rest in the midst of suffering. And here's the first thing. What this is saying to us, these verses, it is not promising you exemption from suffering if you trust God. We've talked a lot about that in the last few weeks. You hear that regularly here. Let me prove that to you. Let me give you two proofs of that. One would be the book of Job. How many are familiar with the book of Job? Okay. In the book of Job, Job was blameless, upright, feared God, and turned away from evil. Job 1.1. Yet Job experienced many of these things, Psalm 91 says, won't happen to you if you trust God. He was a good guy, and yet he experienced many of these things that we see in Psalm 91. Job's so-called friends, I call them miserable comforters, tell him that if he would only trust God, he wouldn't experience all these bad things. If you, if you work through the book, this is exactly what they're saying. Well, Job, if you were as righteous as we are, you would be going through all these horrible things. Well, that's really a nice thing to tell someone while they're going through suffering. And and that's really what they were telling him. And at the end of the book, God shows up in a storm and rebukes Job's friends and says this to them. You have not spoken of me what is right. You are misrepresenting him. And he comes down hard on them because of that. Let me give you another example. It's, It's in the temptation of Jesus in Matthew 4. Satan is tempting Jesus in the wilderness. One of his temptations, in one of his temptations, Satan quotes two of these verses in Psalm 91. In Matthew 4, 5 through 7, the angel took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, Jesus, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. So he's quoting Psalm 91, 11, and 12 of our text. And what the devil is saying is that if you trust God, God will protect you and you won't suffer. In fact, you won't even stub your toe. But if you suffer, that means God can't be trusted. That's what the enemy is tempting him with. See, see, the devil knows that if we believe that as part of our theology, he knows that in, in time, eventually, we'll be disappointed by suffering and probably even devastated by suffering and we'll be terribly anxious, bitter, and depressed and probably turn away from God. I've seen it many times. Most American Christians do not have a healthy theology for suffering and they are taken out because of that and I've heard people say this to me after all I've done 
I went to church, I read my Bible, and I prayed, and this is what happens to me? And I'm, I'm trying to figure it out. It's like, well, I don't understand what you're talking about. Do you even understand what the Christian life is about? It's not immunity. It's not being exempt from, from, from trials and difficulties. Well, what are you thinking? That somehow you earned a right standing with God, so, so you did all these things, so now God owes you? God doesn't owe you anything. You will forever owe him for all that he's done for you. And so there's, there's just a wrong understanding of what the gospel is about. The devil's out to devastate you. Here's what it's promising. It's your next fill in the blanks. It is promising that you are immortal until God is finished with you, and he will exercise his love, wisdom, and power so that all things in your life will work for your good and his glory. That's what he's talking about here. And we're reading this not just in this text, but in the fuller context of Scripture. Yes, he can and does give safety, health, and life as a gift, and nothing can happen to you without his permission and design. And his design is always for your good, whether you understand it or not. Romans 8.28. How many, how many have memorized Romans 8.28? You guys know what I'm talking about? Okay. You guys are afraid to raise your hand, aren't you? Some of you. He'll call on us to come up and uh, recite it. Okay, let me, I won't do that. So go ahead. How many know what I'm talking about when I say Romans 8.28? Okay, there's a few more hands. Okay, how about you? Come on up and uh, recite. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I wouldn't do that. So Romans 8.28, but how many know Romans 8.29? For you to understand Romans 8.28, you need to know Romans 8.29. Because Romans 8.28 says, for we know that all things work together for good for those that love God and are called according to his purpose. Oh, what's his purpose? 8.29. 29 says what his purpose is. He's going to do all of this because what is he trying to do? Make you more like Jesus. He's going to conform you more and more into the image of Christ Jesus. That's where you want to live. He's working in your life to conform your life more and more into Christ's likeness. That's the sweet life. That's the sweet Christian life. That's where that fullness of life is found, becoming more and more, more like Jesus. God is not the cause of sin and suffering. We are. It's our rebellion against God. But let me ask you this question. Is God more concerned with relieving our suffering or revealing our sin? Don't answer that, just think about it for a minute. Think about that. Now let me ask you another question. What are we most concerned about, relief from suffering or revealing our sin? There seems to be a conflict of interest here, don't, wouldn't you say? Relieve my suffering, please. God said, hey, I'm gonna use that suffering to reveal your sin so that you can become more like me in character. Listen to me. Your suffering will not destroy you like your sin will. Your sin will take you to hell for all eternity. He's more concerned about your sin than he is your suffering and will use your suffering to reveal your sin so that you can become more like him. Amy Augustine posted this on Facebook this last week. I ripped it off from her. It's actually a quote from Kevin DeYoung on Revelation 8. Listen to what he says. Every catastrophe, every natural disaster, every tragedy, every bitter experience of suffering in the world and in our lives is God giving us a warning and a wake-up call to repent. 
Now, there are also other things he is doing in those, but it's a small taste of the so much worse that is coming. It's a, it's a very God-centered way to explain to non-Christians as to why are all these tragedies happening? It's God's grace inviting us to repent before the real thing, the judgment, comes. Genesis 50:20 is the Old Testament version of the New Testament, Romans 8:28. Guys familiar with 50:20? Remember Joseph? This is pretty profound. Joseph looks into the eyes of his perpetrators and says, you intended to harm me. He's in touch with reality. This was really hateful and hurtful what you did that was devastating to my life. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good for what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Now think about that verse just for a moment. Just kind of walk through it. So you intended to harm me. That was hateful. That was hurtful. That was devastating. But God intended it for good. What? Almost sounds like a contradiction. God intended it for good? Yes, for what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Joseph was abused by his brothers, sold into slavery, falsely accused for sexual misconduct, and forgotten in prison for years. He experienced absolutely terrible suffering. The Bible never looks at our suffering and says, oh, that's good. The Bible never says that. Jesus never said that. God never says that. It says that's horrible. That's terrible. But God uses it in our lives. He experienced absolutely terrible suffering, yet we know the end of the story. If Joseph hadn't had all of these bad things happen, he would have never escaped the proud, self-absorbed person he was becoming and would have, be and would have never become a great man. His brothers would have never been humbled and healed psychologically. Multitudes of people, including his family, would have starved to death. So, so what was God protecting them from? Here's what God was working his protection for them. God protected Joseph from the self-centered narcissist he was becoming. God protected his brothers from the self-destruction of sibling rivalry caused by their father. God protected multitudes of people from starvation. God was doing all of that through suffering through difficulties. Listen to what Timothy Keller says. God somehow is bringing his power to bear on all things in such a way that we will see from the vantage point of eternity that every bad thing that happened in the end brought about something better and more glorious than would have happened if the bad thing hadn't happened. In other words, the bad thing brings about something better than if it hadn't happened which means all the evil intention of evildoers will be utterly thwarted and all evil will be absolutely defeated. That's heavy theology. See, the cross of Christ is an example of that. The cross is evidence that in the hands of the Redeemer, moments of suffering and apparent defeat will become wonderful moments of grace and victory. 50-20, you need to have a 50-20 perspective Joseph, looking into the eyes of his perpetrators, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good for what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Here's your next couple fill in the blanks. It is promising to protect the only part of you that matters, and that is the real you that will get stronger in suffering and last forever. 
It is promising to protect the only part of you that matters, and that is the real you that will get stronger in suffering and last forever. Luke 21, 16 through 18. Listen very carefully to Jesus' words to his disciple, to his disciples. It kind of will make your head spin a bit if you really study it through. He says this, you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you, they will put you to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. What? Didn't he just say someone would be put to death? But not a hair on your head will perish. Then verse 19, by your endurance, you will gain your lives. By your endurance. Why would we need endurance? You're going to suffer. But by your endurance, you will gain your lives. You will find out what it means to really live. See, if you look to anything more than God for your meaning, hope, and happiness, it will own you, control you, drive you. You will lose your life. You will ride an emotional roller coaster of ups and downs based on how well the object of your meaning, hope, and happiness is doing. There will be no rest for your fearful heart. See, suffering gives opportunity to reveal our counterfeit gods, our misplaced meaning, hope, and happiness, and our desperate need to transfer it to the true and living God of the Bible so that we can gain our lives and find rest for our fearful hearts. See, if you believe that Psalm 91 is promising you that no bad thing will ever happen to you, here's what you're saying. God is going to allow me to keep all the things I love more than him, making me into a person who will never be able to handle suffering and in the end lose my life. If I will dwell in him, I can find rest for my fearful heart. Here's the last one. And live a full and satisfying life, even, even in the face of danger. And this is what should separate Christians from everybody else during dangerous times, difficult times, devastating times, is that we're dwelling in him, we're finding rest in him, and we are living full and satisfying lives even in the face of danger. These last three verses are a, are a kind of prophecy. It's basically God speaking directly to the reader, speaking to us, God giving us these promises. In these three verses, God gives us seven promises to those who hold fast to him in love and know his name. In other words, dwell in him. It not only proves that we are not exempt from suffering in these verses, but also shows us how to get the power to trust God when suffering happens. Look at verses 14 through 16. Because he holds fast to me in love, this is God speaking, notice all the I wills. I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. Knowing God's name is is really intimacy with God. It's knowing his character, his attributes. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Here's your next, next thought on your notes. Don't let anything take God's place in your life. Verse 14, because he holds fast to me in love and knows my name. How do you rest under the shadow of his wings? When bad things happen, it's opportunity to regain your life by identifying your counterfeit gods and taking your heart's overinvestment in them and putting it in God. Reinvest in God whatever you invested in, whatever it is you are losing. Look to him 
It's called worship. It's called worship. Next weekend, we're going to talk about worship from Psalm 95. Want to change your life? You've got to change what you're worshiping. We're all worshipers. It's just a matter of what are we worshiping? What are we filling our mind with the beauty and the value of, of what? It needs to be God. Here's the next one. Trust God to provide whatever you need to face anything. Look to God to give to you whatever you are trying to get from, from your counterfeit God. It could, be, it could be really good things in your life, your marriage, your job, any number of things, your kids, you're trying to get from them what you should be getting from God. And so in verse 14, I will deliver him, I will protect him. Verse 15, I will answer him, I will be with him in trouble. There it is. He doesn't protect us always from trouble, but I will be with him in trouble. He's not going to keep trouble out of our lives. Many times he will allow that trouble into our lives. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. Verse 16, with long life I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. So that last verse in particular, he will add days to your life, but most importantly, life to your days. Most commentators said this, whether you die young or old, you will be very satisfied with life and content to leave it because you're going to be so filled up with life through him. If you know his salvation, as it says at the very end, you can face anything with peace and poise. So let's, let's transition here. I've got one more point to make. Do you know the lengths to which he has gone to literally be with us and to provide everything we will need in trouble? John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world, he loved you this much, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish. Apart from him, you're going to perish. Whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but through him the world might be saved. He came to rescue us. He came from heaven to earth to die in our place for our sins. And you need to find refuge in his finished work. That's what he did for us. Verses 7 and 8, it actually tells us, talks about the judgment that's coming. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. We won't face the judgment because he took that judgment for us. Now here's, all of this is guaranteed, all that we talked about so that we can, we can dwell in him, we can find rest in him, we can live full and satisfying lives because of what he's provided for us. Here's the last fill in the blank. All of this is guaranteed by his substitutionary atonement. That's a big, big theological idea that's really, really important for you to know. Atonement means at one moment. We've been reconciled to God, substitutionary. A mother bird protecting her young with her wings not only conveys God's greatness and goodness, God's toughness and tenderness, but also conveys substitution. How is that? Well, when she spreads her wings to protect her young from rain, she gets wet. From sun, she gets hot. From predators, she gets eaten. She puts herself between the bad and her young. She takes it herself. Listen to the words of our Savior when he was on this earth crying out, 
to Jerusalem, he says in Matthew 23, 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. That's our Savior's heart for us. Jesus is talking about the judgment that everyone will face for their sins if they refuse to find refuge in his finished work on the cross. Isaiah 50, 53, 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Here's the bottom line. Here's the rationale. If he didn't spare his own son to reconcile us to him, so that we can dwell in him and find rest in him and live full and satisfying lives even in the face of danger. If he didn't spare his own son, he's not gonna spare anything else in taking care of us. You can rest in him. You don't have to be overwhelmed with worry and anxiety and fear. Find refuge in him this morning, not just for salvation, for eternity, but for here and now. He loves you. He gave his life for you. I'll give you an opportunity to do that maybe for the first time, maybe this morning. Maybe some of you have never really made a commitment to Christ. I would invite you to do that when, as we pray. But at the end of our prayer here, as we conclude our time together, I'll be up front, and if you are new with us today, I would love to meet you. If you need prayer for any reason whatsoever, I would love to pray with you this morning. I'll be up here at the front at the end of the, this prayer. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. So, Father God, I pray for those who need to find refuge in your finished work on the cross for their their eternal well-being, but we know that that also applies to their temporal well-being here, that they would acknowledge their sin that separates them from you, believe that you died on the cross for their sins, and they would commit their lives to you. So may we all together, may they with us together learn to dwell in you every day so that we can find rest for our fearful hearts and live a full and satisfying life even in the face of danger. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. We pray these things for your glory and Jesus' beautiful name and everyone said, amen. amen. Love you guys.